consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Future past again. <laughs> oh, so it's back to the future too. We sound a little slap happy. It's because this is the third dish we've recorded in a row. Jackie is still gone. Hopefully she will have WhatsApped me uh, a correct amount, which is a lot. Yes. I'll send you lots of pictures and videos of the cool stuff that I'm doing. Okay. And uh, I'm still practicing in, at home and uh, taking some naps. I was trying to skim the Back to the Future Part 2 for the main plot points because I thought that this was the Western, but now I'm thinking it's Part 3 that's the Western. I didn't know there were three parts. There are three parts, and we're both terrible elder millennials by not knowing. Someone is screaming at their phone slash car right now because I am... Just making stuff up about Back to the Future Part 2. <laughs> I do know the first one pretty well. Uh, <laughs> I love that part where Marty McFly plays the rock and roll concert. Do you know the scene I'm talking about in the first one? And then the band leader calls and he's like, hey, is Chuck Berry there? Hey, Chuck, you know that new sound you've been listening for? <laughs> listen to this and like credits marty mcfly for inventing motown (laughs) what would be the double read version of that like hey ricard strauss you know the never-ending exposition where the obelisk doesn't get to breathe that you've been dreaming of listen to this (laughs) if you've never seen back to the future i apologize you're completely lost right now well, yeah, apparently we're also lost because we haven't, we don't know the difference between part two and part three. Well, we know this is Double Read Dish, Back to the Future, part two. <laughs> we were talking about something in this dish. What were we going to talk about? This is the dish in honor of Patty Malone. What is your dream program? If you could assemble any concert, mm. you're queen for a day, 
what are we playing? What does the program look like? Mm. And it can be anything. It can be solo, chamber, orchestral, Chuck Berry, by way of Marty McFly, all of the above. I'm going to put some oboe quartet on there. I'm going to put some Mozart oboe quartet on there. It's a beautiful piece. It's a beautiful piece. I definitely have repertoire jealousy over the Mozart oboe quartet. Yeah, I've never actually gotten to play it. What? I know. It's crazy. I've never actually done it. Like, I practiced it, but I've never actually performed it. So really? you need that needs to be your New Year's resolution next year. Someone remind us. Okay. That sounds good. <laughs> okay. What else? Mozart oboe quartet. What else? Uh, okay. So I'm really into this piece that I'm sure you all have heard of, but is somewhat new to me. I heard someone play this in a masterclass one time and then I promptly forgot about it. And then I heard about, I heard it again. And I was like, oh yeah, I have to this piece. It's Three Ways to Cook a Fish by Philip Fryhofner, Hoffer. I'm not familiar with it. It's for oboe and piano or if you don't have a pianist, oboe and recorded gamelan. <laughs> okay. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's like very like poppy kind of. It like has a really strong groove in all three of the movements. It's like it. the title is referring to how three different chefs would approach cooking a fish. It's very cool. That's interesting. Yeah. I'll have to check yeah. that out. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so this is Fantasyland, and uh, we could have anything. I would reanimate Florence Price and make her write something for the oboe. <laughs> I would bring her back from the dead, and I would say, Ma'am, I'm gonna need you to write an oboe sonata, and then she would be like, Fine. So, apparently, our dream programs include hypothetical works that don't <laughs> exist. I wish I'd known that in my planning stages. <laughs> um, I would make you write me another piece. Oh. So I would perform Sipway and I would perform another Jackie Wilson special. Ooh, you know what I've really been chosen Jonesing to play lately is some oboe bassoon piano stuff, like like standard stuff, like the Poulenc trio and the Francais trio. I've really been itching to do that stuff again. So that's probably what I would do. It's not usually orchestral stuff that I'm like dying to play. It's like the chamber stuff and the solo stuff. Yeah. I was coming at this a little bit more as like, what would be my concert I would program. So I don't necessarily want to play the works I'm about to shout out. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, at the risk of sounding like a fangirl, one of my pieces I think has to be the Third movement of the Sanson Bassoon Sonata sands the hoedown. We're just like creating a conclusive cadence at the end of the slow part and not going on to the hoedown, which I hate. Mm-hmm. Controversial opinion. But I want it to be played by Sophie Durveau because I love how she plays that piece. That's like one of my favorite things to listen to. We talked about how to get your mojo on the last episode. It's like one of my favorite recordings but i don't want to play it i want her to play it yeah Uh, and i just want to like sit in the front row and be like wonderful job (laughs) (laughs) i love the cadence you added right before that hoedown yes it was just to my liking thank you very much and then i would have raven chacon's american ledger number one which is this elaborate graphic score that is also programmatic Mm -hmm. 
it's a piece I would love to play. It obviously doesn't have specified instrumentation, but it's more a work I would love to experience and I have not. And I feel like the recordings that I've heard, it just seems like a work that begs to be experienced in person. And then I would end with, this is the weirdest work. And again, I don't necessarily even want to play it. I've just always wanted to hear it live. It's just one of my favorite works is the Luciano Berrio Sinfonia. I haven't heard it. It's um, it's a postmodernist work. And so it's this kind of commentary on musical development post, post-tonal modernism and kind of like the question of like, where has Western art music came to and where is it going from here? And to create this question, he uses not only spoken word, um, also this narrative from Beckett and um, who's the guy who wrote Ulysses? Joyce. Um, But specifically to do it, he uses quotations to have significance and meaning for the points that he wants to create. And compositionally, I took tons of inspiration from that and the postmodernists of just like, oh, this piece of music has certain significance and meaning to me. So I'm going to quote it or envelop it or put it in here. And it's just like, it was one of the works that like, you know, when you're like an eager grad school student and you're just like gobbling everything up and you encounter those works that just like make your brain explode because of how like awesome and overwhelming they are. Uh, that's always been one of those works to listen to and to study for me. And so I've always wanted to hear it in person. Ooh, you know what that would be for me? Uh, Poulenc Dialogue of the Carmelites. Mm. That closing scene where all the nuns just one by one go to the guillotine. I have to say we are coming up with the weirdest. (laughs) I can just hear the collective like, what? What? Well, let's see if our listeners have any more conventional taste than we do. Okay, so Rachel says, acknowledging that this is a really hard question. I feel like Rachel would be totally into our answers, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Part of me just wants to say a Bach passion. Part of me wants to say Arbo Parrot's Passio, but that's too specific a context, even though I'm dying to do both. I might put on some weird mishmash of symphony movements and some Beethoven 7. Ooh, good. Some Florence Price 3, some Czech 5, some Emily Meyer 5. Even that would be a travesty as a whole. Hey, Rachel, apparently weird is the name of the game when we're assembling these concert programs. (laughs) Dylan shouts out uh, the juxtaposition of Lizzo and Jennifer Higdon uh, for the potential for a phenomenal concert and i have to agree that's a collaboration that's just magic in the making i want to see it happen i do too lizzo and higdon one night only (laughs) they both play flute does jennifer higdon have a flute concerto she must okay now it has to happen yeah we are amending dylan's (laughs) concert to be lizzo playing the jennifer higdon flute concerto yeah And then Gwyneth said, I'd sell my soul to perform Scheherazade. It's one of my favorite pieces of all time. Gwyneth, I agree. I almost said Scheherazade. So, yeah. I've also never played it. Really? Yeah, I've never played any part. Maybe a future dish topic can be a piece you've always wanted to play but haven't gotten the chance yet. That's great. Yeah, I love that. 
Okay. Well, there you go. In the future, when I return, be on the lookout <laughs> for that dish. ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon read shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,200 reads per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reads, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every read is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing Bassoon Pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with readmaking. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are so happy to welcome to the podcast, Kayla Bellamy, bassoonist and assistant professor of music at Colorado State University. Welcome, Kayla. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk with you today. Would you start by telling us how you got to play the bassoon? Sure. This is actually one of my favorite stories. Um, I started playing the bassoon because I used to be a violinist. I started out in elementary school Suzuki programs in fourth grade. I really wanted to play the cello and it was not cello year. So I had to play the violin. So I brought home a violin and made it about the two years of elementary school before we moved to the state of Georgia. And I was a really screechy book two Suzuki violinist. And they told me in the school program I was at outside of Atlanta that I could either play violin in the closet during band time or I could pick a band instrument like every other kid. So I picked Whoa. a band instrument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they showed me this, you know, painted cinder block closet as like, this is your personal orchestra space. And it was a little depressing. So I decided to be in band <laughs> with everyone else. And I picked an instrument. So I picked the French horn and I was going to be the next most beautiful French horn player. And my sixth grade band director got up in front of the class and gave us this speech about how we were going to be a really great band program filled with wonderful musicians, but we couldn't be the best band until we had every instrument. And we really need someone to try this bassoon. And he pulled out the bassoon. It was already put together and he just stood there and it felt like an eternity. And I'm sure it was 10 seconds or whatever the standard like education requirement is that you wait 10 seconds for a student to respond. And I felt so awkward and so bad for him that he was just waiting and no one was willing to try the bassoon. So I raised my hand. And I tried the bassoon and I was wearing glasses at the time. 
and it I played, I don't know what it was, must've been an open F or something. And they sort of wiggled and like shook down my nose. And so I packed up a bassoon and I took a bassoon home that day. And my poor parents had to then listen to beginning bassoon after two years of beginning violin. So <laughs> shout out to my parents for being absolutely wonderful and putting up with that. <laughs> but I've played the bassoon ever since. So they thought they had put in their time and then you gave them a restart. And then I gave them middle school bassoon. That's amazing. <laughs> well, middle school bassoon isn't like middle school oboe or something like really. Terrible. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Middle school piccolo, you know, all the great yeah, Exactly. Uh, so talk us through getting serious about the bassoon and deciding that it might be something you want to pursue after high school as a career. Yeah. And pursuing bassoon after high school and pursuing bassoon as a career were two different paths for me. Mm-hmm. I was in a youth orchestra for a couple of years in high school, and I really liked playing the bassoon. And I never really had um, any experience of kind of private study and what that meant. I had a couple private teachers for, you know, a few weeks at a time, kind of on and off my junior, senior year of high school. But I hadn't really studied bassoon privately and like aggressively as we would consider until I got to college. And I had been accepted. I went to University of Georgia. I'd been accepted as a bassoon performance major, double majoring with uh, international affairs. And the reason initially that I declared bassoon performance was because that was how I could get my scholarship from the marching band and the athletic association was to carry equipment around and have a music major. And my thought was that I would kind of follow music and perform in college and just be, be able to enjoy it and be around the community that I loved in high school and in middle school. But for a career, I was a pre-law student and I wanted to work in an embassy it was actually what I wanted to do when I went into college. And I I realized pretty quickly that a lot of the international law and the studies in that field would be things that I, I wasn't sure at the time I would be able to handle the heartbreak of with things like immigration law and um, more local issues that would be involved in that field. And around that time, that was kind of the second semester of college, I started teaching through the community music school at my university. And I really loved working with the middle school bassoonists that I had started. So I switched to a music education major and kept the foreign language minor. And I was a music education major. And then after I graduated, I was a middle school band director, actually. And it wasn't until after that kind of first year of of teaching in the public schools that I I missed performing so much. And I missed the idea of being dedicated to an instrument to be able to not necessarily achieve, but be able to access music of all levels and of all genres that I picked my one instrument to really study in depth and went back for graduate school. What language did you speak? Spanish. And oh, I do not okay. speak it very well right now. <laughs> I spoke it well enough to make the mistake of telling people at my middle school that I could speak Spanish. And then I translated for a bunch of parents <laughs> for um, the guidance office. Well, that's good. But I've, I've lost quite a bit of it now, sadly. Yeah. Duolingo gets really angry at me. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about your journey through graduate school? Where did you end up going? I actually ended up for my master's going back to the University of Georgia. I had been the student 
in the process of hiring the faculty member who would replace my undergraduate mentor. It was uh, Dr. Bill Davis was there when I was an undergrad. And I was the student that played for sort of all the candidates as they're paraded through the universities when um, the year that uh, Amy Pollard got the position at UGA. And so I played for her faculty interview and we stayed in touch over the course of the the year that I was teaching middle school and I had started taking some lessons and just sort of playing gigs in the area as I was kind of getting regaining my love for the bassoon again and I went back and did my master's degree at the same school that I did my undergrad with Dr. Pollard and then at I had met sort of through her and through some of our uh, national bassoon events Bill Ludwig up at Indiana University and I um, ended up going there for my doctorate and I was there on campus for three years. I think because of the size of the university and the sheer volume of performances they did, I think I played something like six operas in two years Mm -hmm. when I was at IU, which was really a a fascinating experience, a very different type of program, you know, different size program than I had ever experienced before. And I think as as a graduate student and now as a university faculty member, it was really valuable for me to be able to see really three different experiences that bassoonists can have at three different size studios and different universities, even though two of them were at the same university, the bassoon studio and the number of students that I was, that I was directly collaborating with was very different between my undergraduate and master's degree. So by the time I, I left my doctorate and took my first college teaching job, I'd been in bassoon studios that had two and three people and I'd been in ones that had, you know, six to eight, and I'd been in ones that had 28. Mm-hmm. And I think having that diversity ex- of experience has been really valuable for me, both in terms of being able to advise students and work with students at the size schools that I've been at, but also just knowing kind of w- what happens when you get that many bassoonists in a room <laughs> and and what the audition process looks like when you have, when you're auditioning kind of against one person who's your friend and when you're in a, a giant room full of people. Mm-hmm. Along that line, let's talk about transitioning into the field. Can you walk us through, you know, entering, uh, being an a aspiring bassoon professor to where you got to where you are today? Yeah. When I walked into the the first lesson that I had in my doctoral program, I told I told my professor at the time that I knew that was what I wanted to do. I figured out over the course of my master's, I love applying applied teaching and I love working with college age students. Like I'm really, I'm really inspired in a lot of ways by that juncture that college students are at in between the, the desired independence of high school and kind of still the early preliminary stages of being able to play their instrument, engage with music and being professionals that are entering the field themselves. And so I really wanted to teach college. And that was what we had geared my instruction toward over the years of graduate studies. So when I took my first job, it was a very, very quick interview process. It was a late retirement um, in a temporary position had opened up. I had one, I think 10 or 15 minute interview over zoom and sent some recordings and then a couple weeks later i was loading up a yellow moving van to move myself to iowa and i took a a two-year position at the university of northern iowa and then stayed was was fortunate enough to stay there through the national search when they searched the assistant professor position i was an internal candidate there and and got an offer for that position so i ended up being at university of northern iowa for uh, six years total before moving to where I am now at Colorado State. And that program and that that state is really 
was really fascinating. It was a really great experience for me as a first first teaching job in higher ed, being able to then see the different studio numbers and the types of students and have a you know a, a diversity of career interest that I had not really seen in my experiences as a student and the, uh, develop a real awareness for how important accessibility is for student for student success and for students to be able to kind of understand that there are different career paths for them and accessibility in the state of Iowa for for me looked like making sure that I was aware of students from rural backgrounds that had never had maybe access to a private teacher had been playing bassoon for a very limited number of years had never seen another person who played the bassoon you know couldn't really travel very easily to take lessons or visit a college campus um, I think sometimes when you have those discussions about making college and college music study equitable, we tend to forget about geography. Mm-hmm. And I'm really thankful to have had that experience in a state where I had to think about geography and be aware of urban and suburban and rural ways of studying music. Mm-hmm. What perspective can you share with us about the application process for becoming a teacher in higher education? Uh, for those who are on the job hunt um, what have you found is important? That's the, that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I've, I've done, been fortunate enough to do a couple kind of presentations and talk about this in, in greater depth with bassoon studios and with graduate programs at some different universities. And my, a lot of my perspective comes both from being on the market and over the last nine years now in higher ed being on search committees. So I've chaired search committees before I've been on applied faculty and academic faculty and school administration search committees. And I think one of the biggest things that I continue to take away with that is our field gradually redefines what it means to be a professional in music Mm -hmm. uh, is that we have to have, there are some things we just have to be able to do. If you're, um, if you're looking for say an applied faculty position, you, I don't think it will ever be a case where you, you can't, where you can get a college teaching job, for example, without being a high level performer and being able to demonstrate that you have control over your instrument and an ability to communicate a musical product, be able to communicate something expressively without having the mechanics of the instrument get in the way. So I think there's kind of in the most traditional side of things, you've got to be good at playing the bassoon if you want to be a bassoon professor. Um, and that's that's kind of the most old school advice, I guess, is like, make sure that you know how to play your instrument. (laughs) It also seems the most basic, but it's one that we tend to get lost in, in the process. So if you're looking, I remember digging through these as I'm applying for jobs and, you know, you might be asked for 40 to 60 minutes of music that you've performed over the last two or three years. And um, if you don't have really high quality performances, it can be very difficult sometimes to find the volume of performances that you feel like are really your best playing. If you're not consistently playing your best. I think there's there's an element of quality of of performance that I think is is still really important and, and will always be important. But I think the most the one of the biggest things that I like to advise is to just keep documentation of everything you do, even if it doesn't seem like something that's standard or quote unquote respected. Just keep keep a record of everything that you're doing. And if we if we're in this field like we are, where the field and the world are constantly changing and we have innovative ideas, then those are the only ways that we're going to be able to move 
fields of higher ed and fields of classical music forward. And I think is if we have this next generation of academic professionals who are framing these innovative ideas in their own application materials as something that they consider to be a success and that they consider to be important, then that's the only way that we're going to be able to normalize some of these activities and approaches and repertoire that we're currently considering to be on the fringe as like the, the, the diverse option. So some of that might look like being creative with how you categorize things on your resume or your CV. I think when I was initially applying, and this wasn't, this isn't necessarily like a back in my day thing, <laughs> but <laughs> it was a little bit back in my day. It wasn't like standard practice to put an entire category on your CV for commissions and premieres. Because that was considered to be sort of a fringe thing, right? It was the trendy thing to be. At, an advocate for new music was sort of like the joke beginning of a bio, <laughs> an advocate for new music. And now it's standardized because enough of us have been advocating for composers who are still alive and categorizing them and, and representing that in our materials is something that we consider to be academically viable that when we're now trying to also elevate historically underrepresented composers, that needs to be something that we have quantified and we've documented and we've presented to the field of academia as something they need to pay attention to. So kind of staying on this through line of a career in, in higher education, um, as academics, we have kind of three main areas, you know, service, teaching, and creative activity. Um, so what would you, how would you describe kind of Caleb Bellamy's creative activity agenda or um, maybe advice for carving out a unique place and a unique contribution within the field? What's your approach to that? That's a really great question. <laughs> um, it's carving out a place in the field. I think when, when it's presented and framed that way, it feels really intimidating, right? That we have to go in a, in a direction, in a way that someone has never thought of before. And what I've found to be the most kind of inspirational for me and therefore the most successful. So I think those things are inextricable, right? If you're able to, to and able to dedicate yourself to something, then you're going to be able to achieve a higher level than if you weren't interested and weren't inspired by it. Um, having a creative agenda for me looked like just the, initially the freedom of being in a position as a solo artist in particular, where I could play whatever I wanted. And some, and that took me a few years in higher ed to, to sort of stop programming what looked like a degree recital mm. that was equally, equally reflecting the different eras of music. And to some extent, it's, you know, the, the, sort of old way of I'm going to program my recital in chronological order by composer, or I'm going to end with the chamber piece, like these sort of models that we start to not even realize aren't required, but it's just the language of kind of a, a more traditional classical training. And for me, carving my own niche, so to speak, or creating a, a creative philosophy has, has been about identifying first and foremost kind of what are the things that I think are that I'm the most effective at convey conveying and who are the people that I want to work with and that has turned into doing a lot of contemporary commissions and premieres but particularly the commissions working with composers and um, chamber music to uh, create things that I think should be in the field that could be in the field you know music that we 
would like to play that we need to have access to um, composers that need to be heard and being able to, by virtue of having a position in higher education, there's a very considerable amount of privilege that comes with that. And there's, there's a lot, I think, that can be done by those of us that have that privilege to use it. We have access to funding. We have access to people that want to talk to us and put our voices on the internet. And I think there, there's a, a responsibility that comes along with that. And so a lot of my creative mission, so to speak, has been about identifying where I have privilege and where I have strengths and how can I use those to kind of highlight the things that that I think that I think our field needs to see. And none of this is really antithetical to the goal of most musicians. I think it's just another way. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. It's just another angle out of the same picture. Yeah. I think a lot of us fundamentally, when we boil it down, we have the same, we have the same ideas. We Mm -hmm. have the same kind of wants. We have the, we're all humans that are trying to express things to other humans and make sure that, you know, we're not, being cruel to other humans. And that's one of the nicest things I think I found both about higher ed and music in general is that we're all largely pretty good people. <laughs> For yourself. Caitlin. Yeah. I aspire to impart cruelty. <laughs> I wake up every day just wondering how can I be mean to everyone? <laughs> how can I ruin this person's day today? <laughs> <laughs> it's like you were in all my lessons today. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, well, I promise not to ask about your committee work, but, you know, since I asked about the scholarship, <laughs> uh, can I ask about the teaching? Like, how how would you describe you as a teacher? You, you already spoke about kind of lessons that you learned from Iowa. How do you think that informs who you are now and your approach to running an applied studio? Yeah, my I feel like my teaching and my teaching philosophy, I guess the philosophy is is when you think on the biggest picture, it's it's unchanging for me that I'm I'm trying to develop a relationship with students where I can most effectively help them figure out how to figure out the answers to whatever they're trying to figure out, right? Whether this is the big the big picture life and artist problems or I can't figure out why my F sharp is always sharp. OMG, why, 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 why? It's, it's not, it's, it's very rarely me telling them the answer. It's a, you know, a guidance process. Um, but in terms of um, how my experiences have shaped that on a more granular level, I think a lot of the experiences that I had with Iowa, with the things that are specific to the students that I had in Iowa, have to do with that, um, the ability for me to teach what I felt like were more basic principles of technique and playing on the instrument and access to repertoire that was an appropriate level for them when it wasn't the same level that I was sort of taught to expect mm-hmm. for um, for a traditional college freshman. Mm-hmm. I think going into a freshman, going coming into a conservatory who has had access to private lessons for four years and has has been able to purchase their own instrument and is, is playing on high quality reeds that have been made by a professional, there's a different level not because the students are any better or any worse, but there's just a different level that those advantages over time can compound to to have a student have access to different levels and types of music when they come into college and working with students who didn't necessarily have all those advantages um, really opened my eyes to some things that 
I was unprepared to teach for students who are mature adults. And it's, I mean, things like, how do you, how do you talk about intonation if you, you know, intonation in a mature way with a mature adult that when we usually have, we've been taught to expect to cover that topic earlier. And so we really only develop the kind of language and the kinds of exercises that are appropriate for a narrow band of ages mm-hmm. and of experience levels. And I'm, I'm very, very thankful to have expanded you know, my ability to talk and about simple things to very complex humans. The, the mindsets that students come in with really impact how we can continue to talk with them. And one thing that's very different about the students that I've had over the past few years, partially, it, it's hard for me to differentiate if it's because of a different part of the country and a different university or because we have the the shall not be named global pandemic that filters in and has affected all of us, is that s- students are approaching the idea of studying something independently and very seriously differently than they did a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a teacher, that has really changed how I feel like I I need to talk, the type of vocabulary that I need to have, and has really challenged some of my viewpoints on things that we, I think we as teachers have gotten frustrated with students in the past if they just like, you're just not practicing, or you just need to do this, or you, you're not working hard enough, or you're not the things that we kind of heard, we heard growing up mm-hmm. are, yeah, they're not as, they're, it's not that we're not wanting to encourage students to do the work, but I think as they continue to develop greater vocabulary and things specifically around the, the freedom that we have with, with d- talking about mental health in clinical diagnosable concerns or clinical diagnosable ways and terms um, really being not only open-minded to that, but challenging myself as a mentor and as an educator to help students find and help myself find the precision of language to be able to be accepting for these things, but also differentiate between when am I, when am I struggling with depression and when am I sad or when am I struggling with anxiety and when do I feel overwhelmed? And where's that, where does that line exist for individual people? And then for me as a, as a teacher, how do my approaches towards students change based on kind of what I'm, what I'm seeing in that situation? And that mindset requires, at least in my experience, it requires both greater in overall investment in the student as a whole and also better boundaries between teacher and student it's absolutely it's a really difficult line to draw and it's really difficult to have students sometimes see boundaries and to be the faculty member who's drawing boundaries and have it be something that is both is drawn from care but also read as a as care and it's not a distancing tactic right because you know i'm i don't know about you kayla but i'm not a trained therapist so i could do harm if i were to yes talk about some things i could do absolutely to the student that was a conversation i had very recently with a student who was you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm very thankful to have, you know, over the over the time I have with students develop a kind of relationship where they feel like they can speak to me about mm-hmm. these these struggles that they're having. So I I never want to draw a boundary in such what is perceived as a heartless mm-hmm. way that it deters that 
openness, mm-hmm. but the conversation that I, that I had was essentially a, you know, do you have, do you have access to the resources for, for people who can help you beyond the concept of struggling with motivation? Because my training, my care for you extends beyond that, but my training and my ability to help you in, in a responsible way stops here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think differentiating that. that in relationship. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always, it's so, it's so hard to find the right words right, as we yeah. speak on a verbal only podcast. Right? <laughs> no, well, I think I it's so important. Too. So, yeah. 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 I mean, I think so many people struggle with that. I'm pro boundary. I think boundaries are <laughs> necessary. Yeah. And they're also, that's how we care for people, right? It's the same. We, if we didn't have boundaries as educators, we would, we would be crying on every moment of failure that our students had right along with them. And I don't think that's right. responsible pedagogy either. Right. No. Right. And I have also noticed that um, in the last few years, the teaching has had to be different. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting transition. So I'm really glad that you were brave enough to talk to us about that. I think that's wonderful. Well, thank you. I think we need to talk about it. And so it's, it's been really fascinating for me as a teacher to have two different college teaching experiences, two different communities and have one that I feel very, I feel very able to identify trends based on non-global circumstances (laughs) <laughs> and one that I'm like, oh, I'm here in Colorado. I don't know if, I don't, I don't know what the variables are. You know, there's so many variables in the equation that it has really highlighted for me the need for somebody in a role like mine, a role like yours, to be flexible and to be open-minded with working human to human, as opposed to you know teacher to body of student. Kayla, can you tell us about some of your amazing recording projects that you've done? Ooh, I'm I'm in the middle of one right now, so I'm Ooh. I'm really excited about this. Yes, um, my my recording projects kind of from a, the most formal version of them, like formal out studio album recordings. Um, I've got a couple that I've been collaborator collaborator artists on. My single. My first sort of debut album, I suppose, is the term for it. My first like, full album um, was released in 2018. So it's shocking to think that I'm coming up on the five-year anniversary of it. But here we are. And the, my my idea with that album was to create a set of reference recordings for things that just hadn't been recorded before that I, I feel like students needed some reference for. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's called Double or Nothing. Very punny designed to uh to reflect the they were all either unaccompanied or works for two bassoons so one bassoon or two bassoons and a lot of that was inspired both by you know the students that I was working with at the time who were playing some of the the repertoire one of the the opening piece on the album is the Libby Larson jazz variations and I remember playing it for Libby and talking with her I played it in she did a residency at a a university that nearby and I had played for her and the piece was written gosh in the 70s and she'd written it as a a student project for a student friend and I asked her where it was recorded and where the reference recorded she didn't have a reference recording on her website and I found a couple people on YouTube that had played it and she said oh no one's ever played it I guess they just didn't like it I thought like a lot of people play this piece (laughs) 
and there's not a <laughs> there's not a recording of this. So I I put it on the album and um, record a couple other unaccompanied works as well along with that Alex Shapiro very kindly rewrote and reorganized the electronics revoiced the electronics of her work deep for contrabassoon and electronics for bassoon and electronics for me so that was that was really sort of my first engineering and foray into working with a composer who was kind of tweaking things for a project mm-hmm. um, and then we had a couple uh, double bassoon like two bassoon recordings um because I remember growing up, I was for a while, I was the only bassoonist in my high school program. And I'd been teaching for several years, you know, bassoonists who were the only bassoonists in their high school. And they hadn't heard two bassoons together. Mm-hmm. So I figured if if I couldn't personally go and pluck another bassoonist and plop it down in the high school of every lonely bassoonist in the country, at least I could release a recording that was two bassoons only. So they could hear what a couple bassoons sounded like. You should have called it the lonely bassoonist. The lonely bassoonist. <laughs> That'll inspire a lot of excitement. That's yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! Have you heard the latest album, The Lonely Bassoonist? Finding new album, <laughs> The Lonely Bassoonist. <laughs> and little sixth grade me goes crawling back to her French horn. <laughs> <laughs> the second one that I'm in the middle of recording right now is all contemporary works by American composers. So I've had the opportunity to work with living composers for each of them. Add a couple commissions to the mix and there are i've recorded the two concertos so i've got a live couple live concert recordings of the joan tower red maple and the jim stevenson dialogue of self and soul with a college wind ensemble and the accompanied works with piano are done and i'm i'm hope hopefully by shortly after this comes out i'll have finished the unaccompanied works and then we'll just be ready for the the final mastering of a second cd so i'm hoping this fall or this winter is when that next one will be out that's, that's awesome. So yeah, that Stevenson's a great piece. I feel like it's not commonly played enough at all. It's awesome. And I think the individual movements stand alone well. Yeah. So even if you don't have a program that can commit to you know, like a 15, 20 minute piece or however long the whole thing is, the individual mm-hmm. movements work super well. Yeah, for sure. I feel like we're all looking for sometimes um, wind band concerto opportunities are more plentiful than orchestral opportunities. And mm-hmm. it, I think it's such a better option than like, you know, here's the Mozart for wind ensemble or whatever, you know, I, I'm glad you're yeah. putting it on Bless people's us radar. All. Yeah. yeah. Here's <laughs> box for wind ensemble. <laughs> Brandon Burke. There's, there's a, <laughs> there's a time and a place. <laughs> yes. This is another great option. <laughs> You mean I don't need to play the Hungarian Rondo with band again? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kayla, you were recently awarded a big old grant from New Music USA, and we're going to make you tell us about that. I love it. I'm glad we get a chance to talk about this. Um, The the big old grant from... It was from uh, New Music USA, was last the 2022 Creator Fund, and this is sort of a, I don't know, it's, it's, it was a very open opportunity for anyone who's considered to be a creator collaborating with other creators. And the requirements are that the music had to be for at least two people. So it had to be some collaborative in some capacity. And 
at least somebody had to be from the United States of so part of the the New Music USA portion. Um, so my my flute collaborator uh, Megan Lands and I wrote, applied for this national or this national grant through New Music USA, and we won the grant and we commissioned. And we used the grant to commission a Canadian composer named Frank Horvat to write a new duo for flute and bassoon. And we had been talking, this was over, over 2021. We had been talking and we'd already sort of talked with Frank about the possibility of writing something for us. And it was based, I'm glad that we already sort of talked about some of the mental health issues that we all had faced over 2020, 2021. And um, Megan and I had really kind of boiled everything down, at least for ourselves and what we were finding in our students and our friends that most people's mental health kind of ghosts, the things that were haunting us, um, boiled down to three main issues. It was either, it was one of the three, it was you're struggling with control. So trying to control yourself or you're trying to control things for the pandemic that we felt like we're out of control. We're trying to control situations in our lives. Um, The second one was trust as we all have trust issues <laughs> with something. Um, trusting ourselves, trusting each other, trusting the world, trusting the CDC, trusting whatever you were going to trust. And um, the third one was the idea of being enough. So that it's a very- Kayla, why experience. are you reading me right now? <laughs> I love it. This means the piece worked. <laughs> okay. And so that's the one that feel that's the one that's at the core, right? Uh, for a lot of us, that's the one that we're, it's the hardest for us to talk about. Sometimes we can talk about feeling like we want to be in control and struggling with that or having, having trust concerns, trust issues, but the, the root of us as people wondering and really struggling with the idea of, am I enough? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I worthy enough for the good things that are happening for me? Am I doing enough so that bad things don't happen to me and to my loved ones? Am I, am I doing enough? And we talked with Frank about this and he wrote a three movement work that's called the spirits that haunt us. And the three movements are named after those three control trust and enough. And we actually played the world premiere um, the last week of March. So on a March 28th recital, and there's a video floating around on YouTube if you want to see the live world premiere of it. But it's a really powerful piece. And the movements themselves, I think one of the strongest things about this is in order, he, he wrote this piece in such a way that in order to perform it, you have to struggle with those issues as you play it. So the control movement is extremely difficult from a, from a technical perspective. And um, it was really fascinating if, if you, as those of you who've worked with composers will sometimes get, reach this question of like, it, did I write you something that's playable? Like, is this playable on the bassoon? And when I'm working with living composers, usually mine's like, if it is possible for a person to play it on the bassoon, I'm not going to say it's unplayable. I can not fail to play it, <laughs> which, which does happen fairly frequently. <laughs> I, I can have kind of the personal technical limitations of it, but there it, I don't think there are very many things that are written that are impossible to play. And so it has a lot of things that are kind of borderline impossible to play. Large, like octave and a half, two octave downward slurs at very, very fast tempos, um, kind of fluidity things in extreme upper register that involve like very precise. I really, I cursed my left thumb many times to try to, slur down from a b above the staff to c sharp where you have to like 
jump over a key and make things that actually speak super well. And so you're struggling with control of the instrument and the control movement. Um, Frank ended up writing the trust movement for alto flute and contrabassoon, which is a fascinating combination. But we had to live through the trust of like, I, I personally have deep trust issues with the creature that is the contrabassoon. <laughs> it just doesn't always behave the way that we want it to. <laughs> I mean, it's the beast for Ravel gave it the beast for a reason. It's the beast. And so having a really delicate, beautiful consonant movement with contrabassoon and alto flute mm-hmm. unaccompanied by anyone else really required us to kind of deal with our, our personal issues of trust. <laughs> And then the last movement is such a, it's it's so, it ends so simply that it, it really required us to commit to the kind of very, very basic phrasing that feels like after kind of a monumental work, it might not be enough mm-hmm. to just play a pretty phrase. So that was, that was the big massive grant. It turned into this really wonderful piece. And that's, that's awesome. um, on the, that's on the recording docket as well. As soon as I, and every time I say that and like my throat clenches a little bit at the end <laughs> of recording, <laughs> but I, but I'm very excited for, it. I'm really glad that it exists and I'm really glad for the, I'm really thankful for the process of collaborating with, with two humans to, you know, do something so vulnerable. So it's a double read podcast. We can't let you go without asking about reads. So. All right. Yeah. What's your read setup? Give us the deets. Oh my goodness. My read setup. I actually just finished drafting a read making book. So I'm prepared to release this to the world and have, you know, whoever, however many devotees or critics or they can, you can tear it up and, (laughs) or abide by it. But I think one of the things about bassoon readmaking, and I'm sure oboe readmaking, right, is that that can be both really freeing and really frustrating is that we're in this old school kind of apprentice model that you learn how to do this finely tuned craft by watching your teacher do it and copying what they did. And it's very hard to have a set of principles to understand how the read actually functions. I think that's something that's that's really difficult for us. Um, So a lot of my readmaking in my own setup and what I teach to students and what is in this this upcoming book is very fundamentally the idea that everything we do on a read increases its flexibility or increases its stability. Mm. And if you have a read that's overly flexible, then that's what we hear is kind of buzzy in bassoon world. It's flat, right? It's it's well, it's easily responsive, but it's too responsive. Mm-hmm. If it's if something is too flexible, then it's too soft. Mm-hmm. Or you have characteristics that contribute to a read's stability which overdone turns into kind of the muffled sharp unresponsive maybe that's the read that you only use for the high f and then you take it off your vocal right that's <laughs> the overly stable read is too hard and we have so many aspects of bassoon read making that exist somewhere on that continuum from Kane's selection to what kind of gouge you're using to the some measurements that your profiler is set up to, to the, the proportion of your tube to blade measurement and how you scrape and what whether you're using two twists on the wire or three twists. So you wrap with nylon thread and super glue or cotton thread and fingernail polish. And you can really get into the weeds with all of these things that 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 we experiment with. But the one thing that I've really found over the years and that's translated really well as I'm trying to work with students in particular is you're making all of these decisions that are somewhere on that spectrum of flexible to stable. 
And then how you approach the instrument and the characteristics of your instrument itself is somewhere on that spectrum too, right? Long bore, short bore, whether I play on one of those straight bend vocals, if you're using a straight bend vocal or kind of a standard curve vocal, if you have kind of a softer cushion embouchure versus a harder cushion embouchure, if you use a high voicing or keep your oral cavity really open, all of those are things that contribute to creating a more flexible or more stable sound. And if at the end of the day, they average out to the middle, then you'll have a system that works. And so if you, things that you know about yourself and how you approach playing the bassoon, that's why it's really important to make reads that, that work for you and how you play versus we, and that's partially why as teachers and as students, like I would have my professor make an adjustment on a read for me and hand it back to me. And I felt like I couldn't play on anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've had it happen to students. I did that to my poor graduate student last week. And I was like, oh, your read's terrible. Here, take one. And it like collapsed down. <laughs> <laughs> It was something that I mean, it just poor guy. It just didn't. It just didn't work for him because I'm not him, right? And the read that I had given him was set up further on the flexibility spectrum, and he's used to playing on reads that are that ultimate that kind of net more stable, which we, we was part of partly why we're kind of dealing with some embouchure stuff, right? If you're overly stable with your embouchure and turns into biting, then you can bite closed a really flexible read. Mm-hmm. I think all of this, I hope this is making some sense whatsoever. I try to boil it down to as simple as we can, that if something is wrong with your read, that's sort of the question, or if you feel like you can't play on it, is how do we diagnose? Is it very fundamentally, is it too flexible or is it too stable? And in what register? And how do we, how do we figure that out? And how do you make a read that if you know that you have a more flexible instrument, then how do you make a more stable read to compensate for it or vice versa? Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about a favorite memory from a past performance? I'm I'm still thinking about this this duo that I just told you about from the grant, this premiere that we did of the duo. And um one of my dear friends and our voice faculty came up to me after the performance. And I said, I don't know if this is cheating because it's a little bit after the performance, but it relates to in the performance. <laughs> um he he came up to us and and he told me that there was a moment in the last movement it was the enough movement where it goes from being kind of agitated to the transition into this, this more simple melody. And he said, there was a moment where I could feel the change in you while you were playing. Mm. And I remember thinking that that's like, that's it. That's, mm-hmm. that's why we do this mm-hmm. is the, we have a, that perfect alignment of, a piece that's well-written to do a thing. And then I have gotten out of the way enough with my ability to push the buttons on the bassoon and produce a sound and convey that, that the same thing translates to an audience member. And you just have this like perfectly clear communication line, which is that's, that's what I like aiming for in music. What is your advice to a young person who aspires to have a career like yours? Mm, a career like mine. I guess if, there are many ways to consider a career like mine, because I think there are so many, I consider myself to have a really multifaceted career. Um, but in general, a career where you can do that, where you can pursue teaching and you can pursue solo playing, whether that's in higher ed or just kind of a combination of, of being a musician and being a teacher and hopefully still being a human. Um my my advice would be to um, keep an open mind and continue to seek the things that challenge you 
and do your long toes. <laughs> Kayla, thank you so much. We had such a great time talking with you. Thank you for joining us on Double Read Dish. Thank you so much for, for letting me speak with you. This is wonderful. It's been fabulous. Okay. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, we hope that you will follow us on social media and rate and review and that you're having a wonderful summer and that you are as looking forward to the next episode as we are. Galit, who's joining us on the next episode? We loved our chance to talk with Alex Kinmonth, principal oboe of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Gilmay Greens. Booyah!